Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, SBS gets cosy with Syria's president and Lee Sales gives John Howard a pat on the back. Marion Demasi's demise, the Catalyst reporter is in trouble again for sensationalising science. And police body cameras. Reports say they work wonders. But what are the privacy concerns? Joining me in the studio is the Sydney Morning Herald's science editor, Marcus Strom. Hello, Marcus. And from ABC's Media Watch, Lauren Williams. Hello, Lauren. Hi there. And on the line is freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Hello, hi. Hello, Claire. We're live tweeting and you can put your questions to the panel. Our Twitter handle is ForthEstateAU. The role of a journalist is to ask the questions the public needs to know. But getting a chance to ask those questions is half the battle. After two years of chasing, SBS landed a TV interview with a man many have called a tyrant, Syria's President Bashar al-Assad. SBS looks good because it had a hard-to-get interview. Al-Assad looks good because he gave a rare-to-give interview. SBS's Luke Waters had 25 minutes with Assad. He was instructed the interview must be shown in full with no editing and hard questions are welcome, but rudeness and interruptions are not. Interviewing politicians for TV is itself a political act, but the producer and the media advisor want the politician on screen. A producer needs to make compelling TV. A media advisor needs to make their client look good and get their message out there. So the media advisor will work with the show's producer to set the parameters of the interview. Favours are remembered and expected to be repaid. Lauren, how valuable are interviews if they're so carefully stage-managed? Well, I think in the case of um, interviews with with serious Bashar al-Assad in particular, you know, it's it, it's it's fraught. I mean, this is a, a guy who and a, and a regime that is notorious for uh, granting interviews for those that they feel will give a, a favourable image and and denying access to those um, that they uh, that they don't feel will uh, will will present them well. So, you know. It, any journalist going into into that space is is going to, I think, uh, risk uh, uh, damaging their credibility um, just because of who who they're dealing with. Um, having said that, I mean this was a tremendous scoop for SBS, and I think they ought to be, you know, congratulated. Everyone was very excited about it. I do wonder though about the uh, the you know the processes that led up to that. When you say you wonder, is this the case of SBS being like so chuffed that they got an interview that they're willing to go easy? I'm not sure if it's that they were so chuffed uh, to get an interview. Um, I wonder if they would have got the interview at all, uh, being, frankly, an Australian uh, broadcaster that is of little uh, influence um, and importance uh, for the Assad regime. So... Uh, you know, it may not have been that they were willing to go easy, but they probably only got the interview, I'm speculating here, um, on the basis of certain conditions being met. Otherwise, it's just not in the Assad regime's interest. I think there were some, um, some, 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 some questions that were, you know, that really should have been asked that were left hanging there. And I think um, people, especially oppositionists, were rightly uh, disappointed with, with the outcome of the interview. Luke Waters himself admitted after the interview that he wished he had more time, but at 25 minutes he was ushered out of the room. He had a dozen questions that he had planned to ask and didn't have time to put to al-Assad. 
What did you think of it, Marcus? Well, I watched the interview this afternoon and I I thought he did an okay job in very difficult circumstances. The, the other option is you just don't interview these people. And there's an argument for that, I suppose. But I thought it was quite interesting because you get to a little bit of a look inside the psychology of this guy who's running a war. He's very smooth. He, he was very um, polished in the way he delivered his point of view. But I think an intelligent viewer should be able to see behind that. And I think the context in which SBS presented it the, before the interview and then they interviewed the former Australian ambassador to Syria afterwards, I think gave it adequate context. Um, and I thought it was a useful interview. Claire Connolly, you're an intelligent viewer. You saw it. What did you think? You know, I tend to agree with Marcus. I think obviously whenever you're interviewing someone high profile, there are generally conditions attached to it. But I think it's equally important to understand the propaganda regime and understand how Assad is presenting himself and the war to the world. So I think while it may not have been the most satisfying interview, I think it really... We learned a lot about, certainly about how Syria and how Assad is positioning themselves from a propaganda perspective. And I think we really need to understand that before we can really start to unpack how we put an end, hopefully, to this ongoing conflict. In the interview, Assad criticised the West, including the Australian government, for publicly slamming him as a murderous tyrant, but allegedly doing private deals with the Syrian government. So how do you present the Syrian government's side of the conflict without being accused of being a mouthpiece for propaganda? I mean, I think we need to be really careful about what we describe as a mouthpiece. A journalist's job is to observe and report. And whether that interview is with Bashar al-Assad or John Howard, there is always going to be an agenda behind the interview. Otherwise, why else would they sign up to it? Just because you're interviewing someone doesn't mean you're a spokesperson for them. It also doesn't mean that you advocate any of their views. You're simply asking them a question and leaving it up to the audience to make up their own minds regarding the response. I think you have to look at the merry dance between civil society and journalism that we have to try to present uh, objectively and in the interest of our readers so they have good information to make informed decisions. And I think, I mean, the union's code of ethics is a pretty good place to start to look at where you go, and then, you know, generations of practice of journalism. And I think sometimes journalists get it wrong one way or the other, but on on the whole, I think the endeavour is to to get it right. Well, the tricky steps of that dance, though, you're supposed to, as a journalist, see the agenda, see through it, and ask questions to get around it. But in this case, you're in lockstep. Yeah, I think um, what what hasn't been mentioned in this conversation so far is a, a very important disclaimer that SBS made at the beginning of this interview, which was that uh, they agreed to restrictions that were uh, that were set in place, and they importantly said that those restrictions were exactly the same as uh, were imposed on every other journalist who had ever interviewed Assad. Now, I happen to know for a fact that that is just simply not the case, and um, we have had journalists who have given um, Assad a lot more of a grilling. Um, Jeremy Bowen from BBC, for instance, did a great job. Um, I have spoken to producers who have also who have been uh, in negotiations with uh, other interviews with Assad who have uh, who have stated that they have not been subject to those same kind of conditions. So, 
I really think I, you, you do need to think about how much that's going to compromise uh, the content and, um, you know, the, the degree to which that might um, disrupt your credibility with the output. You know, Marcus is right in, in saying that the, uh, the follow-up interview with the former ambassador um, provided much-needed context to that particular interview. Um, what I would have liked to have seen in the subsequent transcript um, that was provided with that interview would have been the questions that um, that Luke Waters said that he he wanted to ask and and didn't. I think that would have been uh, maybe added to the credibility. I think what really diminished um, the credibility of the interview was uh, the fact that it was immediately put up on the Syrian National News Agency website, which frankly, having been a journalist working in Syria, is every journalist's nightmare. To end up being on the Syrian national uh, national web page. If, if the Liberal Party does that with an interview with Lee Sales, does that diminish her credibility? You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking to Marcus Strom, Lauren Williams, and Claire Connolly. Former Prime Minister John Howard gave a press conference about the findings of the Chilcot report, an inquiry into the reasons for invading Iraq. ABC journalist Sales was criticised for tweeting, watching John Howard today should be instructive for pollies. He's so on the front foot, taking every opportunity to defend his legacy. The Twitter sphere thought Sales was out of line, and the author of New Front Page, New Media and the Rise of the Audience, Tim Dunlop, agreed. In a piece for Medium, he wrote, What's the point of journalism that so fundamentally contradicts the expectations of the audience for which it's created? Sales' tweet isn't necessarily an endorsement of Howard's decision to go to war. It's an endorsement of his media strategy. Claire, why do you think Sales felt the need to send this tweet? I mean, I think, again, we really need to be careful about the idea of endorsing or advocating. Sales is drawing attention to the fact that Howard obviously had a very deliberate media strategy. And whether or not that's working, I don't know. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of hostility being directed in the wrong direction. I mean, I think we've always, journalists must always be careful, particularly on Twitter. Um, and I do think that all journalism should, at its heart, be adversarial. And I don't think that Lee Sales, of all people, can be accused of not delivering adversarial journalism at the best of times. Um, certainly over the last few years, I mean, we had two or three years of Tony Abbott refusing to even appear on the ABC, um, you know, but when given the opportunity, you know, she steps up and I, I don't think we can fault her for that. It's interesting yeah. you say that because the ABC is supposed to be politically neutral and their coverage is audited for that reason. But people on the right complain that aunties are lefty. So do you think that some ABC commentators overcompensate from time to time to appear balanced? I mean, uh, the idea that the ABC has ever been neutral is questionable at the best of times. And um, I do think that particularly over the last few years, the ABC is bending over backwards to make sure that it represents both sides. And if not, you know, almost disproportionately giving coverage to a much more hard right uh, group than, you know, would be considered a moderate or, or objective coverage. And I wonder, you know, when, we, when we're looking at this, we, we say, well, you know, are they just balancing it out? But, you know, equally that could be said to be showing favour, 
you know, for the sake of its funding or for the sake of its future. I mean, the ABC has become a political hot potato. Um, I would have hoped that the election result might have drawn away from that, but it doesn't look as though that's going to happen anytime soon. And therefore, I think most journalists that are working there are sort of drawn into the politics of the function of the ABC. And I think that can definitely impact on the ability of a journalist to do the job. Um, certainly uh, what happened with, with Nick Ross that we saw last year over his reports on the NBN shows that there are obviously at least tensions between uh, objective reporting and pacifying government. But, you know, I, I think there are some stellar and outstanding journalists at the ABC. Lee Sales is obviously one amongst them. And I think if we're going to put... The onus on, on media strategies and, and, and endorsement and advocating, we need to be asking more of our interview subjects. And yes, the journalists ought to be doing that. And as I said, it should be more adversarial. But I think a lot of this energy is directed towards the journalist and not at the person who's failing to answer the question. Rather than try and work out what, what Lee Sale's motivation was, uh, I think more interesting is to look at the reaction and what Tim, Tim Dunlop says that is about where the public thinks journalism sits. And I think a lot of the reaction was, why are you congratulating this guy just for turning up? That's his job. He needs to be held accountable as a bare minimum. And I think that's what Tim uh, Tim's piece went into. And Jay Rosen retweeted it. And Jay Rosen from NYU um, Journalism has been on about this for years. And he was recently, well, a few years ago, he was in Australia at a Walkley's event. And at a dinner that that I was at, he, he was amazed that there was this show on the ABC called Insiders. He said, what, what, why is it called Insiders? The, the job of journalists is to be with the public, to be the outsiders looking in. And I think this reflects a reaction in the public that journalists can be just part of the political game. They're not, they're not part of the public. And I think that explains the reaction um, to, to Lee's tweet, whatever her motivations were, and I think it's pointless trying to work out what that is. I might just jump in there. At the same time, I, you know, I think that especially in the age of social media, um, you know, if we're talking about audience expectations of what the journalists present and this need for objectivity and to, and to not be, you know, p- part of the political process and part of the game, at the same time there is this um, real demand for... Uh, you know, added commentary, added analysis, um, extra insight, um, especially in the world of social media where it gets really, really fuzzy. You know, you've got, you know, editorial guidelines from media organisations saying don't tweet opinions. That was that came up recently with uh, the New York Times sent out, you know, a memo to staff saying don't tweet opinions in the, um, in the wake of the Orlando massacre. Um, and yet, you know, from personal experience, I can say that, you know, I've had editors ask me to tweet um, views and opinions around a story that I've just reported, you know, on a very factual basis. So, you know, I think, you know, we can't just blame, you know, the media for sort of overstepping the mark in terms of not just being objective observers of what's going on. There is a real demand for this stuff. That's right. If you're a marquee journalist at a big news organisation, your employability is often pinned against your social media prowess, how many followers you've got on on how many platforms. Yeah, and increasingly, you know, we look to journalists to uh, to build their personal brand, um, exclusive of whatever masthead or broadcaster that they that they work for. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking to Marcus Strom, Lauren Williams and Claire Connolly. Dr. Mary-Anne Damasi, a reporter for ABC TV's science show Catalyst, was last week found to be in breach of the ABC's standard of accuracy and impartiality for her report, Wife Ride. It's about the potentially dangerous radio signals emitted from the little box that sits in the corner of every home and every school. But experts have slammed the piece as sensationalist and inaccurate, so you don't need to put on your tinfoil hat just yet. Writing for The Age, Jonathan Holmes labelled Damasi's report as advocacy rather than journalism. Well, I doubt she benefits much from the downfall of Wi-Fi. So why did she do it? Lauren, was Damasi just trying to cause a stir for attention? Um, well, as you'd know, Media Watch has um, you know, gone after Demacy um, a, a couple of times, most recently on Monday night's program. Um, you know, she's got a history of, of, of sort of going after these controversial subjects and, uh, you know, tra- challenging, you know, scientific orthodoxy on um, issues that, you know, affect large numbers of people. Often they're not... Um, you know, particularly new theories, but they're going to uh, affect millions of of people and 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 you know potentially scare a lot of people. I don't know if you call that sort of magazine journalism or sensationalism, and I don't think there's any real issue in challenging orthodoxy. Um, you know, the issue is 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 doing it doing it fairly. Um, you know, she's obviously going to go after subjects that are that are going to be tremendously popular because they simply because they do affect so many people. The Guardian's environment reporter and former New Scientist writer Michael Slezak wrote, "The mere fact that Damasi thought a non-mainstream view deserved more airtime is not, in and of itself, a valid criticism. The fact that many people think it is reveals something about how they see science journalism. They think science journalists should be conduits or communicators of the mainstream scientific view." He went on to say, let's stop pretending science journalism is some special case of journalism and needs to be subservient to the accepted experts. Such arguments do a disservice to science journalism and the public. Damasi simply failed in her attempts to do good journalism. Marcus, scaremongering isn't unique to science journalism. But there must be a temptation in science journalism to go after the big exposés that'll get everyone talking. Well, sure, you want people to read and watch what you're producing as a journalist. I mean, that's, that's part of what we do. But I think Mike, Mike, Mikey there is right. I think it was just bad journalism. I don't think it was, it's wrong to go after the, the dissident view. In fact, that's how journalism works, and it's also, in a certain way, how science works. Science isn't just a set of orthodoxies presented as tablets of stone. There's constant debate going on in science. Journalism of science needs to represent those debates sometimes with a bit of a, uh, a raised eyebrow. But I think the, um, the, the mark was stepped over in, that, in those cases. But I, I do wonder if Damasi is a scapegoat in this. I, I've, obviously, I'm not um, au fait with the inner workings of the ABC, but presumably that show went through all the normal uh, editorial checks, legal checks, was ticked off by producers, editors, etc., and so on. Um, and I just wonder if there's been a little bit of a pressure to, you know, make Catalyst a bit more sexy um, and get a few more viewers in by dealing with controversial issues. That is an example of how you don't deal with a controversial issue. That's bad science. It's bad journalism. 
Well, in this case, it's been lumped on the journalists for being sensationalists, but sometimes talking about sexy science, I'm sure there's a temptation to try and cast for a lab technician who's also charismatic and who can speak without jargon-laden English. Um, you're right, and we are very time poor as journalists, so the temptation is to go to the people you know and have a regular bank of contacts. I I try to broaden that as much as I can, particularly uh, in terms of, in, particularly in science. I try to go to as many women as I can in science because of um, all the debates happening about gender representation in science. But it's it is very difficult. You do tend to go to people you know, and that can be a, a bit of a loop. I might just um, pick up on something that you know Marcus mentioned now about Demacy, whether she, whether or not she was a scapegoat, and presumably there being you know the the the, uh, the usual procedural oversights, and that is something that that we at Media Watch um, did uh, talk about extensively. And that in the case of Catalyst, uh, no, uh, there there were not um, there was not the same level of scrutiny. Uh, she does not have a dedicated executive producer providing the level of oversight and factual. Um, checking that other ABC programs in factual and and uh, and TV do, and that was identified in the in the, in the you know the, the wash up um, as as being you know a, a flaw in the editorial process um, that that needed to be addressed. Well, it's not the first time that Catalyst has found itself in hot water, so let's hope it's the last. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello. I'm speaking to Marcus Strom, Lauren Williams and Claire Connolly. On Wednesday in New Matilda, Amy Maguire wrote a damning account of Aboriginal lives lost to police brutality and neglect. Without video evidence, Australians find it hard to believe that black lives matter. She says police are automatically believed because of their uniforms, but video is changing the game. She was referring to people recording footage of police encounters on their mobile phones. But there's another camera on the scene, police body cameras. Reports say these lapel cameras have a civilising effect. That is, officers are less likely to engage in aggressive or inappropriate behaviour, and citizens are less likely to be rude and resistant. Some studies claim that write-ups made against police drop by up to 90% when police are wearing body cams. Full transparency sounds like a win-win for citizens and police, but there are some nagging questions. Should body cameras be switched on if police are in someone's home? Or what if an officer is interviewing a minor or a sexual assault victim or someone who's just attempted suicide? These are stories the media have a responsibility to treat with caution. What if an officer is getting intel from an informant? Surely that's reasonable grounds to withhold footage from the press. So my first question... Who should have access to this footage? Should it be a freedom of information request or should it be something simpler? Claire, what do you think? The idea that we haven't been using police cams 24-7 in 2000, 2016 is a little surprising to me. While I understand that there are going to be some sensitive circumstances, I certainly don't think any footage should be made available carte blanche to the press. This should be a matter of enforcement. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, a police officer should have the camera turned on from the time he puts on his uniform or the time she puts on her uniform to the time they end their shift. And those videos need to be filed and stored in a way that they're safe and secure. They're not going to leak. When and if they decide to release that information to the press, it needs to be on a public interest and safety perspective. 
police have to be really careful when and how they provide that information. And I do think it should be at the discretion of senior officers and of the media department. Certainly, if there is an incident of police brutality or if there's been an issue where their ethical behaviour has been brought into question, then certainly I think there's a case for that footage to be made public. But I think as a starting point, if all of the footage is logged and watched over every 24 hours for every police officer that starts and finishes their shift, that needs to occur as a matter of course. And then we need to get into the, the broader issues of when and how this footage is provided to the media. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to 100% agree. Um, I can't see how not having um, additional, uh, you know, footage in the form of additional evidence to be used in, you know, later trials or prosecutions or whatever it is can be anyway and harmful. Uh, when it comes to issues of privacy, of, uh, of uh, you know, if there's footage of minors or sexual assault victims or victims of domestic violence, all of those things, we have in place the checks and balances and laws preventing that stuff from being made public. So it's pretty hard that, that you know, for that, for that to be abused. So in that case, I can only see having 24-7 uh, footage of police operations as a good thing. The logistics around this have been called into question as well. Already, those um, police stations in the US that have adopted this technology are struggling with storing it. They have to outsource it to an external server farm um, just to handle the sheer mass of this data. And it's also very expensive for somebody to scrub it clean to make it available for freedom of information requests to de-identify it suitably. I think the more interesting uh, matter is video that is made by journalists and citizens and the police shouldn't have automatic access to that and that should be treated like our notes. That's it from us at Fourth Estate. Thank you so much to my guests, Marcus Strom, Lauren Williams and Claire Connolly. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. Up next is On The Money. My name's Marcus Costello. You can catch us the same time next week.